Thanks, Josh. And uh, it's really good to be up here with you this morning. Um, like Josh said, I, uh, I've been a part of Martinside for a little while now. I um, took some theology classes at APU with Craig Keene. Um, just pull it down. All right. Um, used to be like half the church. Isn't that right? That's how we, how we got here. Maybe a little less now. Um, and then I left college and I went into marketing, uh, got into business. Um, and maybe you guys can relate uh, to if you studied theology or ministry and, and you go out and, and your, your life shifts a little bit and you get into a different career. Like when I was in college, I was pretty like judgmental of business majors. I'm like, really? That's what you want to do with your life? You want to pursue the work of God that way? Like, all right, you know, maybe that'll work out for you. Um, and here I am, I'm working in, in marketing, um, and there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? There's a lot of uh, uncertainty about how does my life and uh, God's purpose for me fit into this work that I'm doing. Um, I think even if you don't work in a sort of market-driven profession, you may be able to relate to some of that uh, anxiety, that cognitive dissonance. And so Josh asked me to talk this morning about the parable of the talents. Um, at first, it, this is you know, a really exciting opportunity for me. This is probably one of the few places in the Bible where uh, investments and returns are talked about. There's, there's talk of uh, interest and opportunity costs. There's a little economics buzzword for you. Even uh, time value of money, you could read into this um, passage. And so I think, and, and often as it's been translated in the history, or interpreted in the history of the church, um, as a certain kind of affirmation of some of these principles, um, but as I dug more into this parable in preparation for this time here, uh, I found more and more that I don't, I don't think it, it relieves some of this um, tension that, uh, that I feel when I approach a parable like this, when I think about what it means to live faithfully um, in the kingdom of God and, and do the work that I do. It's particularly poignant for me because um, I'm involved in a startup project right now. I'm running a small marketing company. There's a couple people in this room, actually, on my team. And uh, in April, we, we got some funding. So there were some venture capitalists from Silicon Valley that gave what in businessy terms was not a lot of money, but to us was a lot of money. Um, and what I learned at the time is there's this expectation when you get this kind of investment of 5% growth in your company per week. That uh, within the first 12 months following getting a seed round of funding, you should triple the total amount of business that you're doing. And the successful startups do that their second year as well. It gets a lot harder, you can imagine, by the end of, of that time period to keep doubling what you're doing. Um, and so I think that although this parable certainly doesn't uh, relieve the tension that comes up when we think about money and the gospel, um, it certainly doesn't for me. I figured there's a lot of therapists in this congregation. I can have an existential crisis with you this morning, and you guys will help walk me through that. So if you guys could stand, and if someone could read this for me, anybody? Kurt? Same way the one with the 
Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I don't know about you, uh, when I read that parable, I really wish that it ended after the second servant, right? Um, there's this beautiful affirmation, I gave you five, you made five more, you, I gave you two, but you made two more. Well done, good and faithful slave. The word is interchangeable with servant here, and likely uh, the picture here is that these are relatively uh, accomplished servants. They're in the master's inner circle. Um, there comes a question, though, of, of who is the hero in the story? Who are the people that are faithful to God in this particular parable? And if you're like me and you grew up in an evangelical church, you can't hear the sentence, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll now put you in charge of many. Without reading that as the sort of ultimate affirmation. Um, you know, the traditional interpretation of this parable is that the owner is a sort of an allegory for, for God. And that this is God's accounting of, uh, you know, how we have used the talents that we've been given. This is a painting, an orthodox context about this parable as well. I think it brings up the question of the fairness of the master. Is the master fair? It's pretty brutal, his response to the third servant. Uh, basically kills him or puts his life in mortal danger because he refused to participate but to be fair, I mean, the contract was pretty clear, right? It's not like that third servant didn't know what the terms of the arrangement were. Uh, clearly, the other two servants understood um, what was to be asked of them. And uh, the third servant defends himself, having made a conscious choice to not do what he originally agreed to when he accepted the money. So the question here is, 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 the, is the master of the household fair to the servant? Like I said, um, it's impossible for us to not read this story uh, in the context of the, the Western church, and impossible to not read it um, with this sort of traditional interpretation. In fact, I thought it was interesting, the reason we use the word talent in English to mean natural ability is because of this parable. Talent is a unit of measurement. Uh, and the reason we say I've been given talents is because the traditional way to interpret this passage is that uh, the owner of the slaves or the servants is God, and God gifts to us each individual abilities. So <clears throat> the sort of history of the interpretation of this passage throughout time, C.H. Dodd, this is a story of a man who over caution and cowardice led into a breach of trust. John Donahue in the 80s, out of fear, and fa a fear of failure, he refused even to try to succeed. And then sort of a, a common straw man in our community, Joel Osteen, don't allow excuses to cause you to bury what you've been given. Just like the wealthy man wasn't moved by excuses, God is not moved by our excuses. Um, I particularly like this quote by Osteen because I agree with the first part of what he's saying. You know, Don't allow excuses to cause you to bury what you've been given. I think this is a cultural value uh, in the West and a good one, right? Something that uh, most of us would affirm as an important part of um, an encouragement, but you know, the second part of, of this statement is a little more problematic. Uh, the vision of God as the God who is not moved by our excuses. This kind of theological framework is so embedded in the way that we read this parable that you can see it even in uh, interpretations of the text. So on the right is Eugene Peterson's The Message version, 
the left, the NASB, slightly more literal interpretation. Uh, and the right, the servant get, given $1,000 said, Master, I know that you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error, and I was afraid I would disappoint you. This is a very different reading of the parable than, Master, I knew you were a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, right? Very different person. On the left, the servant is saying, I think you're a thief. I think that you defraud people to get these returns. On the right, uh, the master is this sort of uh, coach figure who's trying to pull you out to do your best, or that boss you had that challenged you to do a good job but held you to a high standard, right? Uh, very different reading of this story to the point where Peterson is sort of becoming an apologist for the master, right? I think as in all text and all ways that we approach the Bible, our location uh, and our history as individuals uh, is significant in how we respond to uh, this particular passage. When uh, this parable was read among Nicaraguan peasants in the 80s by Father Ernesto Cardinal, this was their response, response of one uh, young man named William. He says, this is a lousy parable. Cardinal asks, why is it lousy, William? He says, because it's about spending with money, speculating with money, something we all condemn, like putting money out at interest, giving money to others so they can work and work with it and hand over the profits to the owner of the money. It's a really very ugly example that Jesus gives of exploitation, of speculation with money, of pure capitalism. William hadn't read this parable before. He didn't have a church background. In fact, uh, most of the peasants that Cardinal were working with uh, had a Marxist sort of social critique. This was their lens. In fact, it's a really interesting story. His community went on to be a part of the Sandinista movement in, in the 80s. But I think that although the hearers of this parable in Jesus' time would not have had a Marxist ideological lens to view their situation in, the way that they interacted with wealth and poverty would have been much more similar to William's experience with uh, business and money uh, than necessarily with the way we think about it. Oh. When you think about who would have been hearing this parable for the first time, both the people that Jesus would have been talking to uh, and then the people that would have been hearing it right after the book of Matthew was compiled by the author and was being distributed among the early churches, primarily a rural population uh, in which wealth was centralized in uh, several households that, uh, well, multiple but relatively rare number of elite households that maintain their wealth through uh, trading the agricultural surplus of the rural regions. So you've got a peasant population that is under stress from the, the temple regulations and the taxes in the temple, under stress from Rome and the taxes that Rome is putting on them, and then continually dealing with local powerful people who are attempting to extract more wealth from what for them was a relatively non-monetary, non-capitalist economy. And they made that, that wealth primarily through lending to farmers who needed agricultural inputs uh, or using their debt as a way to drive them off of their land and turn them into laborers. So the hearers of this parable, when they're hearing about this, this is their context. And the way that the, the households manage this wealth is the patriarch of the household would have what were called retainers. These are people close to the patriarch who 
uh, were entrusted with the wealth. While the master left, because they often left to go do trade deals or to be in the cities where political life was centered. And in the meantime, their wealth was put in charge of the small inner circle people near the patriarch. And this was a way to uh, ensure that that wealth continued to propagate, but also as a way to diffuse the bad will because uh, the, the wealthy elite would allow his henchmen to uh, essentially profit while he was gone at whatever means necessary. And the expectation was that they would make their return and then they would also use that money to make themselves wealthy. Uh, it's really interesting if you think back to the parable, the, the first two guy who gets the five talents goes out and immediately makes five more. But the, the parable says that the, the owner doesn't come back for a very long time, right? And when he comes back, he just gets those five more that the guy made immediately. What's the assumption? is that, that that servant is using the interim period and that wealth to continue to make money for himself. Uh, this would have been very understood in the hearers of this parable who are in a poor context. So when we read the last part here, the third servant who says, and one, and the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. The hearers of this parable who were in that social location, who were those kinds of people whose lives were under constant pressure from wealthy uh, local elites, from Rome, from the temple, would have been shocked. Like, you, you don't do this. This would have been like, they're like, oh my gosh, can you believe that he said that to the, to the property owner, that he called him out? We all know that he's gathering where he didn't sow. We all know that he's screwing us over, but we can't challenge him. Uh, that would have been the response. And uh, William Herzog, whose book is uh, The Parables as Subversive Speech, says that a better way to read this parable may be the parable of the whistleblower. This is what happens when you call out the wealthy and the powerful. You know, those who have even more will be given to them, even to excess. This is a reality of peasants in first and second century Palestine. So I, we've got that historical context. We understand how they would have heard this. I think it's also really important for us to read this parable in the eschatological or the sort of proclamation of God's future that Matthew makes in the book. Um, Misty did an awesome job setting this up for me a couple of weeks ago with the parable of the ten maidens, uh, because it's really a part of the same story uh, or same sort of section in Matthew uh, where Jesus sets this up. So in the prior chapter, 24, Jesus had just left the temple. He's just spent a whole chapter condemning the scribes and the Pharisees. There's the seven woes. He's leaving the temple and he's walking away. And his disciples walk up to him and they call attention to its buildings. They say, do you see these things? Jesus asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. All of these are the beginning of the birth pangs. Uh, he says there will be wars and rumors of war. Um, he draws this extended narrative about the time of Noah and, and says to the people, it's about to get really bad. We're in the midst of when I'm leaving and when I'm going to come back. 
Uh, and we have to see this particular section of parables about the maidens and about the talents in the context of Jesus saying there is the birth pangs starting and then there is the time when I return. Uh, Luis Chatrav from the parables of Jesus says the idea of time in this eschatology is not intended to present a coherent scenario for the end times, but to help the listeners understand their own present in relation to the coming of God. Again, like right as the book of Matthew is written and compiled, people hearing this, this would have just happened. The temple uh, was either about to be torn down or would have just been torn down. They're facing extreme violence and political instability. And they're facing this reality of uh, continued extraction of their work into the hands of, of wealthy landowners. So what does God do? God points them to his imminent coming, his encouragement to stay awake even during a time when they're suffering. And it's important then that we read this parable, particularly of the talents, in the immediate context of what follows uh, in the end of Matthew 25. Jesus says, to those who have something, more will be given, even to excess. To those who have nothing, will have taken away from them even what little they have. Throw this useless slave into a dark dungeon, where he will weep and gnash his teeth in fear of death. But when the heavenly human one comes in his divine glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit down on the heavenly throne of judgment, and all the nations will gather and stand before his judgment. He will separate people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the royal one will say to those on his right, Come, you belong to God, my Father. You will live in the kingdom that God has created for you from the beginning of the world. I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me water. I was a stranger, and you received me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Right? This is immediately following this third servant who's thrown into prison essentially condemned to die. There is zero grace in the parable of the talents. You did not deliver. You didn't live up to the contract. You're out. Jesus immediately comes back and contrasts the character of the owner, and I think also the character of the bridegroom in the parable of the ten maidens or virgins with the kind of judge that Christ will be at his ultimate return. Right? Um, you know, you are living in this reality now where young women, you are forced to compete with each other to be marriable in a social context. You're shut out of this wedding feast. You see, you know, someone who challenges a wealthy landowner about their business practices, and he's essentially condemned. What would have happened if someone had, you know, stood up to someone of means in this context? But when I come back, when Jesus returns, those who are on my right and my left are not going to be judged by the way the world is being judged right now. There's going to be a totally different reckoning. Still a reckoning, just like the owner has with his slaves in the parable of the talents, but a very different reckoning where there's a different set of values that are being called out as important. So this brings me back to kind of where I was at the outset. So this is, you know, a, a very different way perhaps to, to read the parable than... You may have heard um, or been exposed to. In this particular type of parable, where is the good news of Jesus? What is 
the, um, uh, the outcome here for, for us, for someone who uh, is not a poor peasant, who is uh, in charge of and entrusted with making returns for some people that have invested in me, um, who wants to succeed at my work as much as I possibly can. Um, and, and I, like I said earlier, really resonate with the temptation to uh, read a sort of narrative of success into this parable as God's affirmation of um, the, uh, the sort of value of investing in what God's given you. I think that the first takeaway for me here um, is what Jesus is saying here is you do, you do not have to succeed. You do not have to succeed in the way that the world tells you you have to succeed. This is maybe not an idea that is unfamiliar to our church. I think this is something that we do a really good job of criticizing, um, rightfully, uh, a, a culture that, that doesn't have grace, that, that says if you succeed, if you give me your two talents for the two I gave you, well done, good and faithful servant, and if you don't, like, you're out. You know, we do a really good job of, of pushing back on that. Um, a couple of years ago, I um, was having lunch with Josh. I was uh, thinking of leaving my job at this bigger company, um, thinking of getting involved in this, you know, startup business project with my dad and a few other people, um, and talking with him about some of these anxieties I had about uh, the meaning of work and uh, how, um, you know, how to, you know, I, I studied theology. I imagined myself doing justice work primarily in my career, and now I, I do direct mail, actually. So you can blame me next time your mailbox is <laughs> stuffed full of crap. That's partly <laughs> my fault. Um, and he responded to me, and actually this was really meaningful for me. He said, Go after it. Be bold. Do the best you possibly can at this particular task. Uh, do it in community. Bring it to our life here. Uh, and, and trust that, that, that God is going to invite you into God's work in a way that doesn't necessarily look like you think it looks like. Um, what I think is perhaps part of the message of what Jesus is saying in this parable to, to myself, to, to people like us that are privileged, is uh, success. We don't have to succeed. That's certainly true. Um, I also don't have to not succeed. That was an important lesson for me here, uh, that there's not a new law that's set up that my life has to look a certain way. Certainly, though, uh, this parable is, is a warning, right? is a warning about you know this may be the way that the world looks now people may be profiting handily at the expense of other people and they will be rewarded for that and they will continue to be rewarded for that but followers of Christ your invitation into the kingdom of God you cannot be a part of that this is not what um, what God's future looks like. So that's, in that sense, the parable is a warning. But I think it's also an invitation, and, and the way I sort of heard Josh 
uh, speak to me on this was, um, you know, my success or lack of success is, is really adjacent to what God is doing in my life and in God's kingdom. That the invitation is to bring my life to the table and to, um, to experience God's disrupting of uh, my attempts to set up a sense of security or direct control. Theologian I, I really appreciate in a book that has been meaningful for me is Walter Brueggemann's Prayers for Privileged People. I recommend it. It's really fabulous. Um, he says, it is evident that such a drama of acknowledgement and yielding that constitutes prayer, and I think in this context we can say that constitutes Eucharist, is in effect a subversive activity. It is a refusal to accept in passive ways the closed, fixed world of privilege that wants us to exclude others and deny God's future, that insistently destabilizes our present tense. Every time we pray, we engage in such a subversive activity and thereby align ourselves with the Easter power of God that surges among us and invites us to a different way in the world. 